0: Hello and welcome to the Business of Data podcast. My name is Catherine King and I'll be your host. In this podcast, we chat to senior executives from a range of departments, industries, and functions all about their passions, experiences, and challenges within data analytics. Let's go ahead and dive straight into today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's Business of Data podcast. This week, we're talking all about data ethics and bias, specifically, how our guest today has learned from others and created a framework for ethics and bias in data. To do just that, we have brought in the lovely Jordan Levine, who's a lecturer for MIT and a partner for Dynamic Ideas. If you haven't had the pleasure of meeting Jordan in the past, just a few intro facts to bring you up to speed. Jordan's been lecturing at MIT since October 2020 and has been a partner in Dynamic Ideas since September 2018. Prior to both, Jordan has worked within McKinsey and Company and founded a risk-based health tool organisation as well. Now, if you can't find him at the work desk you'll most likely find him running around after his two-year-old daughter or getting ready rather excitingly for his new baby to come into the world in a couple weeks time lovely to have you on the podcast Jordan
1: thank you Catherine
0: what an exciting time for you both in the world of data but also personally as well goodness me what a busy time you must have at the moment indeed (laughs) you say with a bated breath now also I mean to to add to your many uh busy things you've got in your calendar you're also one of our global advisory board members here at the business of data I thought to start out why did you uh, want to get involved in the wider data analytics community when you're already doing so much
1: yeah I, I um I like math I love math I was a pure math undergrad um and I didn't study predictive analytics. I studied the kind of Greek math, doing proofs all day. And um, as i found that businesses can gain a a competitive edge with data and analytics, I've just essentially dedicated a vast majority of my time to training and education and just spreading the word of what math can do and what data and analytics can do uh, for good. And thus, um, what drew me to this this platform in your organization was... um, a real focus on actual implementation of use cases, uh, less of the hype and less of the conceptual and theoretical over the next de- decade, but more what do business leaders, what do large organization leaders need today and how can it can improve both the world as well as their performance? And so I couldn't say no.
0: <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to have you uh, within the board and, of course, contributing to content just like this podcast. So let's dive in. And I mean... <sighs> data ethics and bias I mean such a hot topic right now um well to say that is a complete understatement I think um now you very much saw this coming and you've been working on on a framework as I said in the introduction to help deal with the various challenges that they bring along with them could you firstly talk me through what exactly we mean when we say data ethics and bias and then why you saw the need to create a framework
1: yeah so let's the I think the kind of governing theme I'd like to focus on is the idea of of a blunt blunt tool versus a precise set of tools. And what I think we're seeing in both the media as well as various governments around the globe is the use of blunt instruments to solve, I think, serious problems. So for example, there's a European Union uh, piece of legislation that is in draft right now, and it is so broad that it's almost hard to understand what to do. Um, The legislation laid out a number of high-risk examples that almost cover our whole lives. Uh, For example, priority in dispatching emergency services, admission to educational institutions, recruiting algorithms for jobs,
0: Mm -hmm. evaluation Mm -hmm. of
1: credit worthiness. Um, individual risk assessments for individuals on the street, uh, including prime prediction algorithms. So the, the list I just gave covers covers our day-to-day, and that feels like a blunt instrument to do. And when the government says, this, this is the new regulation, and it's almost so broad that you don't even know how to act, I, I find that... Um, I find that confusing unless I uh, sat down with a number of folks and, and kind of surveyed the literature and what I knew to create a initial view of what a set of precise tools could look like to help government, organization, businesses, decision makers actually address specific bias issues versus reacting to blunt regulatory requirements.
0: Fantastic. So the 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 wider context, as you say, in the media as well. So with with ethics and bias in mind, what does your framework look to to do in a practical sense?
1: Yeah, so let me answer that very discreetly, and then I, I'd like to visit history for some context. So in a practical st- sense, um, i've I've listened to a number of debates on the lexicon of analytics. What's the definition of machine learning? What's the definition mm-hmm. of artificial intelligence? Mm-hmm. I don't know how to react and I don't know what to do with that information often as I get very confused and so I like to anchor in just very almost almost too basic language but in terms of descriptive predictive and prescriptive analytics. Descriptive analytics you look backwards maybe in, in in computer software you're doing a SQL query to just understand the state of the world. Predictive analytics you have a target variable and ultimately you're trying to predict a future event and then prescriptive analytics what what Recommendation engine can an algorithm provide? What decisions can it provide guidance to? And then, so within each of those um, categories of descriptive, predictive, and prescriptive analytics, I think there are a series of issues that can pop up and and cause ethical issues if there's bias built into the different algorithms across descriptive, predictive, and prescriptive analytics. And thus, what I what I try to do is show how to mitigate those issues and then show actual techniques that exist today that you can leverage open source software um, to do the processing. And then I have a series of cases, historic cases. That, so that, that's the framework, which is simply, look, let's simplify our lives. There's descriptive, predictive, prescriptive analytics. Within each of those um, groups, there are a set of issues that can pop up. What are your mitigation strategies and what tools do you have to do to put them in place? But Let me pause and and step backwards um maybe a century and a half if that's okay
0: yeah absolutely
1: Uh, right so i I opened with like a a blunt instrument versus a set of precise Mm -hmm. tools and and my argument is like the sooner we get away from the blunt instrument into the precise tools the better i think we all are um and in historical context what comes to mind for me and you're broadcasting out of the united kingdom yeah um in In the United Kingdom on the books in from 1865 to 1896 and I mean the the legal books the laws was something called the red flag laws and the idea was this prior to the automobile being on the road the rules of the road were clear you had pedestrians you had individuals on horseback you had horse-drawn carriages and so the the set of uh, things as it were that could occupy the road were clear yeah. and everybody knew how to kind of step out of the way as necessary. Enter the automobile and uh, I don't think it was as clear. Automobile is right. new technology, it drives itself. So what what do you do in the, in the government? Um, and there was a, a law in the United States and I think in the state of Vermont on this as well. But what the uh, British government did is they put the red flag laws in place which said that, that an individual has to walk in front of the automobile with a red flag
0: (laughs) which sounds so funny in the context that we're listening to today right compared to where we are today so 170
1: years later it it sounds silly and we laugh and we say of course that's how the government responds one (laughs) instrument right i i would argue that the red flag laws are still with us very much with us today. And they they didn't actually go away, they just got much more precise. So if you think about stoplights, you have red lights, yellow lights, green lights, we have yield signs on the road, we have yellow lines, we have white lines, Uh, we have pedestrian signals, we have bicycle signals. And then my favorite uh, kind (laughs) of, regulatory guidance in London, being an American is every crosswalk says look down and it's very clear it tells you to look right or look left from on- oncoming traffic, <laughs> believe it or not, I find that quite helpful. Because <laughs> I am programmed to being used to vehicles operating on the other side of the road and Absolutely. so those those look right things must seem very silly to the citizens of London town uh, to me are quite helpful. Um, so. My point, I I opened with blunt versus precise. The blunt instrument was the red flag. It constrained the automobile, but it was necessary at the time because the individuals on the street didn't understand the rules of the road because there were not clear rules of the road written for this new technology. Red flag goes in place gradually, the society, we get smarter, we, we get more precise. We have the right set of traffic laws, traffic regulations that enables somebody to fly across the Atlantic Ocean and navigate London in a fairly safe manner. Yeah. So in that spirit, what what my hope is, is that the, the framework that I previously discussed can at least be an initial start from big giant red flag in front of an automobile to some more precise and useful instruments
0: absolutely and i mean it it makes sense right that that as a reaction we say oh new thing we're not sure how to deal with it let's just kind of slow it right down so that we can deal with it and as you say slowly but surely we can kind of create an environment where that speed of whatever that technology or innovation is can then increase but increase with with the surrounding environment now i'm, I'm keen jordan you mentioned earlier that you're you're basing this around user cases and i wonder could you uh, give us an example of one uh, that you that you can give that you learned from from?
1: Yep. So I, I said descriptive, predictive, prescriptive analytics. Mm-hmm. Um, me, I, I always like to focus on prescriptive analytics because that's often where the value is. Once an algorithm can start helping make decisions, um, it, it there are better decisions to be made, faster, more efficient decisions. So um, one issue that I'm aware of in the prescriptive lens is uh, a, a concept that I tagged as disenfranchisement bias. And what I mean by that is, if an algorithm provides universal benefit and improvement, but disenfranchises one member of, of a potential network, that that is an issue that must be mitigated or consciously be made be uh, made aware of.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So, as an example, um, we with respect to networks we're very much used to lyft and uber at this point where there are a set of cars on the road and what uber and lyft do is they don't they're not transportation companies they're ride handling companies which means as a consumer of ride sharing i can just push a button
0: Mm -hmm. and the network
1: knows where i am and knows to come pick me up yeah but an algorithm makes a decision in the assignment from when I hit my iPhone to which vehicle is going to come pick me up and the the algorithm assigns a vehicle and the vehicle comes and uh, picks me up and then we have a transaction between the contractor of Uber and Lyft under today's laws. Um, The the drivers of Uber and Lyft opt into the network, and I think they genuinely accept fairness of the algorithm. They don't expect any bias that any individual or any type of vehicle is going to be awarded business over another. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we could argue that the 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 higher headquarters tax on the system is too much or too little that that's not for this discussion. What matters is I, I think most drivers enter the decision making algorithm, the prescriptive analytics engine. Knowing they're going to be treated fairly and that there's a set of rules like proximity, timing to the passenger.
0: Et 100%. 100%. Okay.
1: So let's shift gears to a different type of network um, where I grabbed a research paper from one of my uh, partners where we, they were looking at uh, a hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and it involved 10 interventional radiologists. Ten interventional radiologists. Um, they all have their own desires. Some want to work late. Some want to work early. Some want Wednesdays off. They are um, all uh, driven to do academic research, and so they want certain hours protected. And so it's a more complex situation than the Uber and the Lyft one. Right. With with these interventional radiologists, they they do have to make a certain revenue target, and physicians don't normally talk in this manner, but the hospital needs to fund itself and thus they have a certain revenue figure. Yeah. If you go in, and, and right now, the state of the art in scheduling often in most, I think a lot of healthcare practices is that a senior physician or a senior nurse, a veteran who really should spend, be spending their time on clinical affairs, writes a schedule with their hand. And this is a time consuming process first, but second, you know, they're in their head balancing a lot of the trade-offs from the individual physician. Mm-hmm. It, it's. I don't want to say it's easy, but a you know a, a basically trained operations researcher can step into that organization, and create a prescriptive algorithm, a mixed integer optimization, where they uh, seek to their objective function is maximize revenue, their constraints are everything I just laid about on scheduling the physicians desires, and then decisions are when to place a physician. And this sounds good, but I what I'm flagging with a precise instrument back to the framework is that if all If aggregate revenue over all the physicians goes up, but one or two physicians ends up losing revenue, mm-hmm. that can be perceived as a, as a bias issue. That can be perceived as unfair. And thus that we tagged as disenfranchisement bias. And the mitigation strategy to me is to sit down with the individuals involved in the network or the experts and leverage the analytics technique called robust optimization. So from go from standard optimization to robust optimization, which has a set of tools and implications and additional analysis requires, requirements. But by walking into that problem statement and sa- stating upfront, we're going to build a robust model over a standard optimization model, mm-hmm. it, is, it is feasible, doable, and highly likely to avoid the disenfranchisement bias that I laid out initially.
0: Absolutely fantastic I mean it's such what I love about this Jordan and as as you know we, we speak so often I love it when we're talking about these concepts like you know ethics and bias today but we're talking about it in reality and I love being able to pin things to user cases to be able to learn from them because I think when we get into ethics I mean we so much of the time I end up down a philosophical route and we can talk I mean night and day about uh, you know the reason behind doing things and people's motivations and the diversity behind these decisions but when we get to these sorts of examples I think it just lays it out so clearly as you say how the decisions and the processes and the data that we use is impacting real life people and we have to start um, you know making making uh, uh, decisions now before before we get further down the line and and that's a question i want to ask you for the listeners uh who, who are tuning into the podcast today there's going to be a range of them in different positions where where do you suggest they begin on this ethics journey if, if it's kind of coming front of mind that they know they need to start um you know paying more attention than they have before how do you how do you start on this journey
1: yeah i i my sincere hope is that this framework that I put together gets adopted, grows legs and starts moving around because I think anybody in an organization, let's take a bank, let's take credit, mm-hmm. credit risk, let's take writing loans. I think from the, uh, I walk into a bank and I shake a hand with a, a teller or, or a loan manager, all the way up through their leadership to the CEO of an organization I think everybody is aware that they are making decisions, lending decisions, which are very serious and have implications to all of our futures. And um, I, I believe that most human beings want to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And thus, I think this framework is a way for them to sit down, print a, put it on their desk and say, okay, we are, I know that we're spending marketing dollars to engage certain customer demographics. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. That is, that is how you optimize marketing and sales spend. That said, one of the issues I've identified called correlation bias is when um, a kind of like opaque clustering method is covering up uh, certain biases and, and you can't see them because you're using a uh, uninterpretable technique that doesn't lend itself to natural inspection. Right. And so if a frontline manager realizes this and they say, okay, I, th- I think we have an issue. I hope they can use this framework to actually challenge their analytics groups to actually sit down with the individuals writing the algorithms and confirming whether the issue does or does not exist. And so to, to me, it's it's actually take this and think about any situation where data and algorithms are used in your operating business across revenue, costs, and risk, and be able to essentially test or kick the tires on mm. uh, if there's an issue or not. Now. I don't think the framework's done. Okay, I don't. (laughs) Right, you know, back to the red flag laws up until modern day uh, traffic laws. I I think this is going to grow. I I just hope it's a kind of starting point to get away from the blunt instrument and into more precise, actionable, tactical uh, actions.
0: Absolutely. Now, I want to revisit something you said earlier, actually, Jordan, about the regulation that we've just seen the EU uh, suggest, um, and as you say, it's it's everything but a bit uh, vague for certain. Do you think that these sorts of regulations are helpful in the grand scheme of of when we're talking about ethics and bias because it's so so important? And I worry that without any kind of regulation making it important for some organizations, they will kind of get away with not considering it as much. You know, As you say, it is nice to think that most humans are doing the right thing because they should, but there will be many organizations out there who are perhaps not doing the best things that they should. So where do you see that balance of regulation for not slowing down the innovation? Because we know on one hand, the the AI and algorithms that are available to many, as you mentioned, the healthcare, what they can do transformational is gonna save lives, also on the other side there's going to be that other side of the coin where there's some rather not great things being done as well so where do you where do you see regulation playing into to it yeah
1: i i i mean i am i'm 100 supportive of the government getting involved in st- establishing the rules and, and leveling the playing field mm. um, you know the same way that i like the yellow and white lines when i drive <laughs> uh, i know i'm serious i i try i drive down two-way streets often and I trust the incoming driver of the vehicle to stay in their lane because they're intuitive logical traffic laws. Um, so I I absolutely necessary. And if the if if the government starts with a blunt instrument, I, I think that's okay. That that's where I I hope that both academics and kind of business but you know society conscious individuals get excited and say, okay, how do we How do we refine this and how do we move from the red flag law to the very clear traffic regulations that we all benefit from today?
0: Yeah, yeah. And I suppose it's about being heavily involved as a community with this right and working hand in hand with the regulators and saying, well, this is this is going to work for this reason or this isn't going to work so much uh, for that. So it's about as a wider community, us all coming together to decide collectively what we what we agree is the, the right foot forward. So and I, I'm always curious I seem to be is the it's the word of the moment for, for the podcast episodes is I keep saying this word journey because I do think everything we talk about on the podcast with the wider content is a journey, whether that's data literacy, data culture, or here we're talking about ethics and and bias. So what's next for you in your journey with this framework? I, I know you said you're you're hoping for it to develop and expand, but uh are there any other particular areas that you're you're hoping to see in your journey in the future? Yeah I
1: Two steps is I have a personal aspiration in the next 12 months to to get it in front of 2,000 like vested individuals. What I mean by that is operational managers who who use algorithms and want to say, who want to feel comfortable they're doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, I I set the target at 2,000 almost arbitrarily. Um, I think it's achievable. Uh, But with 2,000, what I found is if I get, Training content and, and products in front of 2,000 people. About 100 will take it very super seriously and provide me feedback to then get this thing up to the next level. Yeah. So that, that's the you know two parallel workrooms. One get uh, interested individuals with skin in the game who actually leverage algorithms and, and want to verify this to then leverage their feedback to build the next evolution, the next model of it.
0: I love that. Well, I know how many people on average listen to this podcast. I'm not going to give the number right now, but uh, hopefully they we're going to be very much uh, buying into this. And of course, do connect with Jordan on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, you'll be able to find him through the business of data website as well on the advisory board page. Uh, but just before I let you go, Jordan, I always like to finish off with kind of a key takeaway uh, of, of this uh, podcast. So for you, what would you like to say the two or three things that you want to The listeners of the podcast today to really leave with uh as they as
1: they round up this episode leveraging history i i believe we've been through this evolution before and my historical example is the red flag laws and the introduction of the automobile to the streets of london and the the government reacted i think appropriately by making an individual walk in front of the automobile with a red flag over time, as a society, as a species, we figured out how to harness the technology, use it to our benefit, but do so in a safe manner that limited harm. And as we are now in a world where all of us are producing data with our mouse clicks, our keystrokes, our iPhones, where we walk, or our Google Androids, um, and all of us have access to open source software and cloud computing, the use of the you know we have the ability to process all this data and provide analytics in terms of descriptive predictive, and prescriptive uh methods and and things we can do with it Mm -hmm. and thus the more precise that we can get in terms of bias and ethics and the more the more issues very discrete issues we can identify and then think through how to mitigate them and show examples of mitigation i think the better we all are and so my my big Hope or my, you know, my big takeaway, and my hope is the audience. This resonates with the audience. Is uh, let's collectively work to move from blunt, high-level, heavy, uh, burden government regulation to a set of precise tools that are available to all of us.
0: Absolutely love it, John. And I think what this podcast has been such a great piece of evidence for is data storytelling. Right? It's about taking these concepts and telling a really interesting story, layering it in with that history and that context. It makes it tangible to everyone. Right? uh We we all walk down the street. We can all see the the lines on the road. We we understand that. And I think the more we do this as well within within our wider organisations to buy in and you know demystify the the challenges around ethics and you know what you may have heard as we mentioned earlier in the in the wider media as well so i think it's a, this podcast has been a great example of how you can do that with a with a rather conceptual topic and actually really bringing it and anchoring it to user cases but also uh, a story as well so uh thank you so much jordan for joining me today thank you cap We hope you enjoyed that podcast episode. Do be sure to subscribe and follow the Business of Data podcast wherever you're currently listening to ensure you're always first in line to the latest episode. We'd also appreciate your review as well. So if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a review. And as always, find us on socials as well as heading over to the Business of Data platform for more forms of great content, including articles, blogs and video. Until next time, stay safe safe stay well and we'll see you real soon